Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101, we will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon? Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Hello again, all you diggers out there, and welcome to the next installment of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's ongoing series, Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. This is the place where we take an in-depth look at a wide range of topics, all of which are connected to rock music in their own unique way. Today, we have another great interview for you and a moderate deviation from our typical purview. On October 19th, 2016, I sat down with first-time author and board of trustee member for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Chris Foreman, to discuss his new book, Bright Midnight. In his spare time, Chris is also president of a rather large telecom company. Like your humble host, though, Chris is also a musician, a collector of rock memorabilia, and an avid student of the times and music we devote ourselves to here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. So, here's the rub. His book is fiction, which is very unusual for us here at the RNRAP. But that's not what really sets it apart. For whatever reason, there just haven't been all that many books of fiction set in the rock and roll world. There are a few classics that come to mind, like High Fidelity, The Commitments, and Absolute Beginners, which all went on to be great movies as well, but dig deeper, and the pickings are slim. Bright Midnight is a mystery that posits an interesting concept. What if many of the members of the famous 27 Club didn't perish from misadventure or suicide, but instead were victims of coordinated foul play. For those of you who don't know, the 27 Club refers to a number of famous rockers who were taken well before their time at the age of 27. This list includes, but is not limited to, Brian Jones, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Pigpen, Ron McKernan, Peter Hamm, and Kurt Cobain. Foreman's novel asks the reader, could it be something more than accident? The book is dense mystery thriller, reminiscent of a Dan Brown novel. 
A couple's a grizzled Rolling Stone writer named Gantry Elliott with an FBI agent character taken straight out of a CSI episode and sprinkles a narrative with carefully created clues from rock history. The adventure ensues from there. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my very pleasurable discussion with Chris Formant as we talk about Bright Midnight, his work at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and good old-fashioned classic rock in general. Everybody and welcome to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's Deeper Digs in Rock. With us today is author uh, Chris Foreman, who's written this awesome a new book uh, all on rock and roll called Bright Midnight, and uh, we're going to spend a half hour or so talking about it. So, uh, without further ado, let's introduce Chris. Chris, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Christian? Thanks uh, for inviting me. You bet. You bet. Uh, very, very interesting book. So, uh, my first question is, you know, tell us the moment you you first had the idea of taking yeah. the most famous rock star deaths, you know, c- considered overdoses or suicides or misadventure, whatever you want to say, uh, is historical, you know, historically that's the way it's been looked yeah. at, and then and then move this to that it could have be, they could have been killed for nefarious reasons. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, where, where did you get that idea? Well, uh, I had just seen the Da Vinci Code. Oh yeah, okay? and yeah. you know, and oh, I that, read yeah. the book, yeah. and yeah. it got me. Brown. And, uh-huh. and I thought, what a you know, what a great. Uh, I, I really didn't read. I, I love reading history. I really didn't uh, spend too much attention on mysteries, you know, uh-huh. which is kind of unusual because I wrote a mystery. But uh, I had seen it, and I was really impressed by the way you know he had webbed the clues and the intrigue and everything together, and um, uh, and I was at my condo. And uh, I collect rock and roll memorabilia. I oh, had the think yeah. of this think of this setting. So I had you, you and know, Jim Irsay, right? Yeah, I had yeah I had this old Doors album on, and I had just gotten my latest addition to my rock memorabilia collection, and it was a um, it was a sort of a two page pullout from the Record Mirror, which is was kind of like a variety in in London, you know, uh-huh. uh, in the early '60s, and it was from either '63 or '64, and it was announcing this hot new group called the Rolling Stones. Oh yeah, and, they were um, a hot new group. Uh, they were a hot new group, and um, uh, it was autographed. It had their pictures, and it was also um, marketing an EP, which is how they used to market, you know, people in the past, musicians and groups in the past. It was a, it looked like a forty-five, but it played at LP speed, uh, thirty-three and a third, and it had four songs on there, none of which, you know, they were just covers that they. Yeah, had done. well, that's what the Rolling Stones started but, off as a cover band. Yeah, and so what really struck me was not this piece of rock history, but what really struck me was how young they were. 
Oh, yeah. Young, sort oh, yeah. of pimply face, you know, Mick yeah. Jagger, Keith Richards with no lines in his face, and then Brian Jones. Yeah. Yeah, it was his group. He came up with yeah. the name. He yeah. managed them. He actually took a larger piece of the, of the gate whenever they played. You know, he arranged everything. It was his group. Oh, and well, um, he, yeah, I mean, hi- he hi- he, hired the guys. incorporated, yeah, though. Hired, yeah. you know, hired... Um, you know, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, found Charlie Watt, who was a jazz uh, drummer at the time, and Bill Wyman, a jazz bassist, and put the group together. So I, I was looking at this, the Doors music in the background, and then I and then I was walking back down the gallery, and the first thing I see, you know, is some Jimi Hendrix memorabilia, and then I've got some Jim Morrison and the Doors. And it just struck me at that moment, that was kind of the epiphany, just struck me at that moment that, you know, hey, you know, this is the there's an old hippie myth, you know, myth of 27 called the oh, 27. Yeah. These were part of the club. people that had died at that age. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's been a hippie myth for a while. <laughs> um, but it struck me, you know, all these guys had died at the same age, you know, all with different kinds of suspicious deaths and um, nothing ever proven. And I'm not suggesting that there was anything that's sinister, but I thought, what if they didn't die of overdoses or what if it wasn't an accident? What if it was murder? Wow. And I started this, I started at first sort of almost Dan Brown, like looking to see if I could create anagrams off of the back of classic rock, you know, rock albums. Uh And I spent about two weeks with everything spread all over my living room, um, couldn't make it work. And I finally, you know, finally concluded, okay, what if it's, what if it was a serial killer and what would motivate them? So I started writing the book and started writing the book. But then as I got partly into the book, partly into sort of outlining this story and I, you know, I started to write a page here, page there, page, it struck me that even the serial killer thing over an extended period and the, the stars that I focused on were over like a five year, four to five year period that may not have been realistic. And then as I started studying, you know, so I had this idea. So now, so now I'm working on this. I'm saying, okay, this is, you know, I'm starting to study a little bit more about each of them. I'm doing a little bit of research. Uh, I couldn't get it out of my head, well, uh, tell, which was tell unlikely. Us a little bit about yeah. the research. I mean, uh, as our folks uh, may not know, you know, you're a, a board member at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so I'm sure you were able to use the archives uh, to, to. Well, I wasn't of, at that time oh. when I first did the research. I wasn't. Oh, um, okay. I wasn't. So. This and was so, about ten but, years ago, uh, I guess. The Da Vinci Code no, came no, out I about. I started, yeah, I did it about. I started writing it about, um, let's say, four and a half years ago. Uh, but it the took original me about idea. a year and a half. Okay, to kind of. So originally, yeah, I've been, been, it had been bouncing around it for a few years, and finally, you know, I just, you know, I started putting things together, and my daughter told, said, "Hey, Dad, why don't you just write a book about yeah. this?" And then it clicked, and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna let, let's let's." It's worth spending a couple weekends to do research. So I went up to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, met with their research people. I had met some people through my business connections that had you know, relationships at the Rock Hall, and I got into uh, I got access to some of their archives. So I got access to some of the uh, Rolling Stone uh, editors and writers, actually handwritten notes from the time of the deaths of of these rock stars, and got some cassette tape oh. interviews. And so that gave me a different window into it than anything I had seen. So that that sort of sparked like, okay, there's an authenticity here, yeah. um, and that's what sparked the research into it. And the 
more that I researched it, the more I found some a number of commonalities between a number of them, not just their age, but, you know, they all were... Where they were in their careers and things like that. Well, and especially where they were with their management contracts, Uh, you know, and uh, there was a commonality uh, along the way. And then I found, and you know, and, you know, 50 years in retrospect, I could start to reinterpret events, you know, fictionally. And and that's what I did. And so I got the research, I got research into and some insight uh, into, you know, what it was like at the time and how it was covered and what they thought and, you know, how, you know, how, what was the speculation. I read about some of the theories and conspiracies, you know, got hold of as many of the autopsies as I could that, that actually had formal autopsies. I met a guy who was an editor of Rolling Stone shortly after and, and had written about a few of uh, about Hendricks and uh, Morrison. And so he gave me a glimpse into the personalities of some of these guys, you know, and so I could use that kind of uh, their humor and intelligence in little vignettes in, in the book, because uh, the book is really a it's a retrospective. It takes it's a cold case murder mystery that takes place today about, you know, these deaths that occurred in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. You know, so let's it tell, is. Let's tell everybody. Know, who we're talking about here. I, I think uh, when you get down to it, there are five yeah. uh, of these personalities. Uh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Peter Hamm, who founded uh, Badfinger. Yeah, Beatles uh, first Pete time. Penn right. Mc, Pete Penn McKiernan, yeah, who Ron with McKernan. Jimmy Garcia founded, founded uh, The Grateful Dead, and Blind Al Wilson, who founded um, Canned Heat. Yeah, yeah, and so those are the ones voice. that are that are profiled. Some a little bit more. So it really is less about the rock. It is a murder mystery. It's a thriller. It's a murder mystery. It's a revisionist, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, fictional yeah. murder. So it's less about the stars. And more, it's know, kind of a, kind of a more CSI sort of uh, thing going on. It's a, it's exactly. And um, you know, I was lucky to get some. Uh, I was lucky to get the authenticity of a window into you know that you know that era and, and how it was being interpreted. Then I um, I met a few and got some help, some former FBI uh, investigators, agents, and a NYPD investigator, and they uh, they gave me some insight into forensic techniques. But even more importantly, uh, gave me you steered me towards some of the forensic textbooks that the FBI and police study. And oh. so I I spent some time studying forensic techniques, and then had a um, a doctor who I know, who's one of the leading neurosurgeons in the world at Johns Hopkins, look at the autopsies with me. And then uh, because they were, you know, compared to today, the forensic oh, sciences yeah, yeah, and the chemical sciences very were, so yeah. limited, were so limited that um, we could look at the causes of death and then I could reverse engineer basically what could be other causes of death that would have looked like that, but because they didn't have the capability to interpret it. And that then takes it into, you know, it becomes a 21st century thriller because now you're, you know, it's destroying fictionally, destroying all we've ever heard or been, or read about why these people died. And now it's become something very sinister. And they were, you know, the book concludes that they were hits. 
And that's when it takes off, you know, so. And um, the interesting part is I'm a technologist uh, by trade and I run a a very multi-billion dollar global business. Yeah, tech. Um, Yeah. yeah, But even in in using modern day forensics, uh, I still had some gaps. So I invented two technologies that aren't in existence today that feel like they're real, but they were invented. And so uh, I'll leave it to readers to uh, to pick to it up as they go those. through. They stand. Right. They say, well, I think they stand out. They stand out. You'll you know, but yeah. but so there are two technologies, you know, almost Tom Clancy like that sound like they should be in use, you know, um, by the FBI down in Quantico, but they're not in existence. Well, at, at least as far as you know. As far as I know, they may, get, they may give them some great ideas. Right, exactly. So that's hey, what, so, so, so that's yeah. So that's the genesis of it. It took these actual factual deaths and then reimagined them as murders. And as told, I mean, no one has ever done this type of cold case, you know, thriller with actual rock and roll. You know, events. No. And so I can't find, when I was doing re, I couldn't find anything like it, anything, you know, it was very controversial when I was trying to get it published. Um, because um, as a murder mystery, they liked it, but they the publishers didn't think that music-related books would sell. Oh, there has okay. not and been so, very many music, they, uh, rock and roll, fiction type books. Uh, uh, you know, no, uh, maybe no. you know, let, let, you know, high fidelity uh, with with exception, yeah. uh, and maybe a few others, but uh, but there just is not a large uh, market. Uh, so hopefully, but, but, this but the is market, start but the market, yeah, but the market's right for it now. And if you look at if you if you follow you know the changing uh, seasons, if you will, you have know, like HBO and things like that. You'll see, you know, we've gone through the Mad Men era. Now you're seeing more and more. I mean, how many times are you seeing oh, a documentary about Jimi Hendrix? You know, um, vinyl. You know, whatever. You, you know, whatever's out now. Now it's been 50 or 60 years. So now that's history. Yeah. I mean, that's really modern history. And so it's time. My kids enjoyed reading the book because they just didn't know. They had been, you know, caricatured. They didn't know that during the 60s that these rock stars and groups were enemies of the state. Uh, you know? yeah. And yeah. Um, there was, you know, there was a, you know, so-called McCarthy, you know, rock and roll McCarthyism. And yeah, so it's we talked about that you know, a lot. It's just a difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah moral and panic. So I think, uh, we just did an episode on moral panics and, uh, you know, that's well, a big thing. Anti-rock weaves its way through uh, throughout the history of rock and roll. So it's a, you know, it's a, I don't consider myself a good writer. I think I'm a, you know, an average writer. I'm just starting, but it's a good story. It's a very fast paced story and a real page turner as you get into it. But I've littered it. I've littered through throughout the book for all the musicologists, yep. whether it's, yep. you know, records or obscure things. One of the clues is a very obscure collaboration between Jimi Hendrix and Brian right. Jones right, right. before. Yep. Right before um, Brian Jones died, you know, it's virtually unknown. So some of the things are real. So some of the events in there are actually real. Some of the groups that even there's one scene where Jim Morrison is uh, checking out a group called JK and Co. You know, which was for a brief period of time in San Francisco or in L.A. You know, during the uh, right before the summer of love was a hot group. It was a 15 year old. You know, it was a hot group. That's and then he wanted and then he you know eviscerated wasn't around but so tried to pull these things these kind of obscure thing it's it's my sort of homage to uh to high fidelity <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right right you know, right, to, right and then dropping those so ever so there's a little bit there are mystery 
mystery writers, yeah, it's a great mystery. You know, boomers, you can, you know, and uh, and people who are interested in, in rock music and then people who are really interested in the period will pick out all the little nuances there. No, yeah, it's, so it's certainly to put fun. Something it's in for it's everyone. certainly fun yeah. novel to read. Yeah, uh, and to your point, it's uh, very fast paced. I mean, once, once you dive in, it's mm-hmm. a page turner, and uh, and you can't put it down. So that's uh, that's yeah. true. So uh, tell us about our the two main characters, and uh, I, I think you've kind of hinted at it in our discussion already. But uh, you know, you've got. Well, I can't like, tell Gantry, you too much, so I'll ruin the uh, story. Yeah, of course, of course. We don't. No spoilers here. No spoilers here. But how did yeah. Gantry Elliot our uh, our writer main character and Agent Melendez, our FBI agent, materialize out of your imagination? Well, I mean, uh, two things. You know, I wanted Gantry to have, you know, I, you know, think of the think of how Rolling Stone magazine started. And it was kind of counterculture and it was a, you know, sort of eclectic collection of writers and uh, musicologists and fans. And, um, you know, so I thought uh, and I had this image in my head of a Jeff Daniels kind of person. You know, right. you saw him in Crazy Heart. Oh, just, so, that's so he's going to get the first. So, uh, he's going to get the first call. Yeah, so he'll get the first. The movie yeah, and then we and we and, and we've had we've already had inquiries about the music rights. I mean, the film rights. Oh, so they so imagine him. You know, you know, sort of like that. You know, okay. so he was kind of a little scruffy. You know, kind of irreverent. He's been around. He's had ups and downs, and so you know, this is a guy that's in his mid sixties, and he was there right at the start of Rolling Stone, and yeah. he's the the founders, you know, one of the, you know, one of his buddies. Um, Melendez shows up when the people, you know, when uh, Gantry and his publisher decide, well, maybe, you know, there could be something here. Maybe there's a story, you know, check it out with the police or better yet, once you check it out with the FBI. And Gantry remembers uh, crossing paths with this FBI agent who, um, Named yeah, because Melendez, of the John, who the was John the, Lennon murder. Because of the, so he, he met him there, and you know they never really kept up, but you know he just had a name, and so he reached back out to him, wow. and so instinctively thinking that this guy, you know, if there was someone that's going to help me, someone that may have some affinity, you know, for rock and roll from that era. Um, and he was right, you know, m- might help him, even though the FBI was reluctant and wrote it off as another hippie, you know, wacko hippie, <laughs> just trying to get some attention. And so, which, which you kind of, you know, I think that that sort of gives the practical side to it. Um, the one thing I want to point out that I think you'll find very, very interesting and, um, and Christian may not be aware is that uh, I went for real authenticity on the cover. And so it actually was pretty controversial. With yeah, the publisher. it was actually they designed by David cover. Singer, right? David Singer. And yeah. so, um, and this is where my Rock Hall connections, you know, I knew the curator really huh? of, yeah. of, of Fillmore West. Uh-huh. Um, she put me in touch with the so sort of the three remaining Fillmore West, you know, poster, poster artists. Right. Uh, and I did a little a little bake off and singer one, you know, all these guys are in their mid to late seventies. David Singer, as you know, did a lot of the early Grateful Dead, uh, Rolling Stones. I mean, he's still active. Uh, He's moved on a little bit. They've all moved on from that genre, but David more than anyone else, you know, was one of the popularizers in the sixties in the mid to late sixties of the collage movement. He, he, he was really the grandfather of that. And so he designed that is a, collage. Yeah. It's a digital collage 
supplies that he put together, and only the name is is pen and ink. So what we tried to do on the cover was emote, you know. So if you when you look at it, it sings sort of psychedelic because you see the psychedelic sort of lettering. So that you know you see some you see blood in the water, so that you know that there's something sinister going on. You see a couple of these sinister people, and also the bust that is that's on the cover there's a bus that's tilted with some blood coming out of it that's the um that's the bust of alexander, yeah, the, great alexander the great from yeah. the from the acropolis museum I've in seen athens yeah. uh, okay and uh Maybe you know, if you know your uh, little jim morrison there that's that's exactly what it does and so you know if, you know for those for those people that know their doors history you know jim morrison thought he was alexander the great reincarnated patterned himself after him held his head like him and patterned his hair after him. so you know it's sort of a you know so what david tried to do is we sort of put it together so hey can you put this in? so he put it together to kind of emote, you know, uh, so when someone looks at it, they'd get a number of emotions all at once, a psychedelic blood. There's something, you know, there's something eerie here. And, um, and the title, you know, comes from a door song, you know, uh, end of the night, which is from a William Blake song, a William Blake poem. poem, Yeah. So that's, that's a derivation. So we've got, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I wanted to pay homage, you know, and, and, and give it not only authenticity, you know, to the story and the vignettes about them and authenticity to the forensic investigation, but, but also, you know, I wanted the cover to separate itself from anything else that you'll see out there. It looks like a rock cover. And in fact, David is putting together some posters, you know, to commemorate the rock hall, our rock hall kickoff a little bit later in the year. Um, you know, that'll that'll look like a concert poster and said Chris Foreman by midnight, you know, debuting at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, we look forward so to seeing be, that. You know, so yeah, we'll put that on yeah, that'll be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'll be kind of cool. So was there was there a particular rock journalist that you uh, you were thinking about when uh, you created Gantry? Um, yeah, there were a couple that, you know, I started to, I started to think about early Rolling Stone and, um, and the kind of, the kind of writers that they, that they would, that that they would bring in. And the guy that struck me the most was that if I, even if I look at the picture, you know, could have been this guy was Jerry Hopkins. Okay. If you're familiar with Jerry Hopkins Uh and, um, you know, Jerry Hopkins, uh, and I'll tell you why I felt an affinity for him. Jerry Hopkins had uh, gone to a Quaker high school and said, I did myself. Um, he went to Washington and Lee University for college. I did as well. And he ended up uh, working for Mike Wallace as an oh, investigative yeah, reporter. Minutes, right? And yeah. he was, yeah, and he was one of the first writers you know, for, and he's written, he wrote what, what I thought was sort of the quintessential Doors book, No One Gets Out Alive. Yeah, no one here gets um, out alive, right. No, yeah, so he wrote that. Um, but he was one of the early writers uh, of um, at Rolling Stone magazine. Okay. And so he was one of those pioneers that helped with Jan Wenner and, you know, a few of the other founders that helped pioneer this new type of, Writing Journalism, about music, yeah. it really yeah, it, yeah. the new music musical. There wasn't anything before they they basically invented it, and um, 
so Jerry sort of did that, and he was sort of an investigative reporter, got into um, music history, chronicled what was going on at the time in very provocative ways. And so, you know, he's sort of the, you know, if I put his persona within the um, Jeff Bridges body, that's Gancy Elliott. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Yes. So now, you know, do, you, and, and, do, you, do you think you're more Gantry or more Melendez? Well, I'm more analytical. Um, oh, so you're, you're more, you're come more out of the creative okay. side. Yeah. Yeah, probably a little bit more, but I did play in a rock and roll band. And, you know, and I do, I do think that these stars and that era of mu- music that I wrote about, I really do. And I say this in the book, I really do think that that was a renaissance in music. I mean, so oh, yeah. much has come yeah. out of that it's, time, it's that time music. period. And, yeah. and, and you're preaching to the choir. With some of, yeah, particularly with some of these stars and some of them are not well known at all but you know i think brian jones was a genius i think uh you know uh jim morrison you know thought of himself as a poet really as a writer and not really as a singer um i think peter ham was a brilliant musician writer yeah, and yeah. writer and his songs didn't blossom till later you know blind al wilson was probably one of the top blues you know blues harmonica players, you know, and guitarist of his era. And he's just, you know, he's been lost in history. So some of these guys are, are really, um, you know, we're just exceptional. And, and when I learned a little bit more and you get away from the caricatures as sort of drug adults, you know, hippies, um, you know, a lot of them were very funny. Jimi Hendrix was a, you know, was just a jokester, funny guy, you know, and some of them were, yeah. And some of them were just very disciplinarian. I mean, you think of these guys just get, you know, were, were, were just completely drunk on their ass or high every time they got to go. It's not the truth. You know, some of them took the music part very seriously. And, um, but you know, there are a couple of common things. None of the ones that I, uh, write about were, were real, they didn't have a sense for the business side of it. And they were all taken. They're most creative of. people. And, don't. The, and, and the one commonality, uh, is that, uh, and it gives you some, you know, some insight into the, uh, motivation for the book is that they they all had some severe managerial or contractual issues, you know, and they had walked away. There was something, there was something very bitter going on right there. And so, <laughs> That's common you know, in the music and when industry, you, you know, it's well, and it's not it exactly, more common uh, the, then, you know, a pinnacle, yeah, yeah, more of, common uh, than when, a, you know, a handful of, yeah, more common than when it was almost mafia like in the control that a few people had globally. And so different kind of, I mean, it's obviously quite a bit different now, but it oh, set the stage for something possibly, you know, quite sinister. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if you could go back in time and save only one of those artists, who would it be and why? And why over the other one? Mm, that's pretty hard. I was hoping you wouldn't ask the question like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping hey, you, you wouldn't ask the question. Hey, you can change your mind like tomorrow, that. you know? It's just, yeah. you know, what was the first name that came to mind? Um, the first thing was Jim Morrison. Um, not because he was a musician, but because he really was a, a brilliant writer. Um, and, um, and poet. And I think right before his death, he was starting to mature and settle down. I mean, if I could, if you could see him mature, you know, Jim Morrison settling down and really focusing on his art, you know, I think he could have been brilliant. You know, I think, uh, 
my first instinct would be Janis Joplin because she was so um, she was so influential on women on generations of women down the line. But I don't think her voice would have held up more than a few more years, you know, after her, you know, from the time of her death because she had she had destroyed it. Um, I'm, I my hunch is that Jimi Hendrix would be playing jazz. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was pretty, at yeah, that he, point. yeah, yeah. He, Rock, he was Rock already heading that way. Anyway. I think. Yeah. I think Peter Ham would be would be um, you know scoring film scores and things. I think he was uh, you know you know he's that kind of you know that kind of person. And um, you know probably Blind Al Wilson would be playing in dive oh, bars. Yeah, all the, the blues country. clubs. Right. Yeah, right, right. he'd be playing in uh, you know. You know, Brian Jones would probably have left, still have left the group, and probably be running an ad agency or something. <laughs> you know, because that was his background. <laughs> you yeah, know, so I think some of the guys would have would have you know possibly outgrown it. Um, you know, there's a line in the book where Gantry's Gantry's reminiscing as he's going through some of the. He's working with the FBI. I'm trying to come up with some commonalities. I'm looking at engineers and writers and musicians and things like that. Okay. And he starts reminiscing about a time when music was an art form and not a science project. And I think that, you know, many of them, some of them would have been able to to mature through the ages like a Paul McCartney or the Rolling Stones may have. And some of them may have may have Bruce, they may have not felt good about it because, you know, you know, they were artists. And, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, there are very few of, um, you know, of today's artists that have the, the, the same kind of musical and multi multi talent, you know, uh, to play a variety of different instruments to create what they did with the crude technology that they had, you know, at the time in retrospect. And so, you know, I always think of it, uh, Christian, I don't know how you think of it, but I always think of it, you know, just like Gantry said, I mean, you know, music was an art form then, you know, not the kind of science projects that we see today with auto tune and, and everything else that can make even, you know, bad music sound good. Oh, you want to blame it on the Swedish songwriters then. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it is, it's, uh, it's more of a, a corporatized uh, industrial uh, endeavor than, uh, you know, a, a democratized art form of, you know, you know, four or five guys getting together and, uh, you know, humanistically, uh, putting something out. Uh, so I, I see your point. Uh, and, and we completely agree here at the rock and roll archeology span project. Uh, this was a very unique, special time. And I think the further we get away from, uh, from that moment, uh, the more obvious it becomes. Yep. I All right. So, so, so let me, what is your first rock and roll memory? You know, what's the one that made probably, the most difference? You know. Oh, I think hearing the Beatles, "I Want to Hold Your Hand." That's probably the first time I heard that. Um, Take me there. What, what, you know, when think, was that? I think I was just you know a little, I was just, you know, a little kid. I mean, I was just a little kid, and and I and I heard it, and it struck me because it wasn't it wasn't like anything I had ever heard before. And um, my dedication in the book, there's a line if you turn to right 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 under the title. It says, for those who heard the music like they never heard the music before. Yeah. And, you know, there's a point, and I think we all had that when we were 
kids. And it, and um, for many of us, that became those songs are, are the songs. I wouldn't quite caricature it as a soundtrack of our lives, but they're songs and they're things that we've accumulated over time that we go back to all the time, you know? And so there's some of those songs that are those those 60s, 70s songs that that still remain perfect, you know, because they're in a little time capsule and you can go back to them today and sort of experience it the same way you did um, back then. So, you know, that kind of, I think the early Beatles, you know, the early doors. I mean, I just thought, you know, it was, they, they, um, they, they lived they on another planet. Something. Yeah. Yeah. They lived on another planet. And uh, I'll just tell you as a side, I was at desert trip two weeks ago and uh, Neil Young opened for, Paul McCartney and then Paul McCartney pulled him up on stage about halfway through his concert and they sang a day in the life together. And I just thought it was, you know, they're paying homage to John Lennon, but, um, you know, to have these guys that had survived all that time and still singing this iconic song, which is sort of like the Beatles opus, you know, and, um, you know, it's just, uh, it was unbelievable. So I still, magical moment and I think that um, you know it was for everyone that was there what was your first concert my very first concert was not actually a rock concert (laughs) I went to a small school in Washington D.C. and they had a jazz group that was going to play in the gym on a Friday evening and they you know they um, someone had set it up and you know some of the students went and they were selling tickets to it and it was for a group called it was for a guy in his group called Dave Brubeck and I didn't know who they were but probably the most famous jazz <laughs> jazz guy yeah, yeah. Takes pop off. jazz yeah and yeah, the yeah. war it ever lived yeah so that it was Dave <laughs> well, that's Brubeck. a good way to start like okay seven, all right seven or eight years old we'll, yeah, we'll take so that, that. Was we'll it. take and, that there's jazz influences in rock. yeah yeah definitely yeah that 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 counts yeah as so rock. that was yeah so that was that was it wasn't rock at all it was uh, you know with jazz all right that's really so the first music what are, what are your literary influences uh, you know what's the first book you read uh, what's your favorite book of all time oh Oh, I don't know about. I can't remember the first book I read. Um, I mean, the first one that really made my, a big difference to you. I don't. I don't mean a children's book. I mean the the first, you know, real novel. Um, well, probably when I was, you know, when I was back in in grade school, everybody reads Catcher in the Rye, and, and uh, those, I think those are kind of those. Right. Yeah, those are kind of the normal sort of rite of passage things. I, I'm. I I love history. Yeah. And um, my favorite author is a guy. He's a current author named Stephen Pressfield. And Stephen Pressfield is um, wrote a book called Gates of Fire. I'm Greek. I'm actually 100 percent Spartan, or at least that's what I was told. <laughs> the um, so you're from you know, the Peloponnese. So I, you know, okay. Great, yeah, great. Both great. Yeah. So I, or my parents, my my family is. Uh-huh. And so um, he um, uh, he's written about that era, Greco-Roman. You know, and so I've I've read a lot about it, and so now I've sort of moved on to more revolution. I went through that sort of the Greco-Romans, particularly you know Spartans, and then moved on to um, you know moved on to um, the Civil War, 
I was an avid reader of the Civil War. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I'd visit all the oh, yeah. Civil War sites. Yeah. My dad would drag me all around to do it. And then, um, and now I'm focusing on the Revolutionary War and, uh, and learning all about it. You know, so that's been, that's been one of my real, uh, one of my areas. Okay, so I have, to, I have to ask, uh, so, have you bought tickets and have you seen Hamilton? Uh, yes. You're one of the lucky yes. few. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I actually belong to a corporate organization, and uh, uh, Lynn Emanuel came and spoke to us. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's a group of 50 executives, and so we came, he came and spoke. So uh, actually, I mean, that's, that's, you know, coincidentally, the book that I'm writing now, about a third of the way through, I hope to have something ready to go next year. At some at some point, um, the book that I'm writing right now is a um, is a uh, revolutionary war fiction. So I love to do revisionist history. So it's about an actual event that occurred in the revolutionary war that saved the colonies. And so I fictionalized it, and I'm you know I'm making it into more of a of a drama. Interesting, interesting. You want to? You, you, we'll have to have you back and talk a little bit about uh, the revolutionary uh, war book that you. Uh, do you have a title yet? Uh, right now, the working title is "The Sons of Baltimore." Sons okay. of Baltimore. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's get you back here and rock and roll a little, just a little bit more. Okay. So, first question: You got to choose rock and roll or business. Mm. I know this is this this one I struggle that's with like, myself. So. That's like that's like food or water. <laughs> All right. That's All right. like food or water. You're not you're not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm at the office right now. So you can, if I was yeah. home, I could. You know, but uh, it's all business during question. the day, right? Rock and roll at night. It's all yeah. business during the day. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Right, so right. I think it's it's a little bit of right and left brain, you know, thinking um, that I think uh, complement each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, tell us. Uh, we we talked a little bit about it, but maybe you can expand a little bit on your rock memorabilia collection yeah when did you um, start i mean did you yeah. start this as a youth or no no i i really didn't i um i was working in london i was uh working for a management consulting firm for a few years and um i started um you know i went to you know memorabilia a sort of dealer once it was down the street from where i was staying in in downtown london and something just caught my eye it was a beatles autograph you know the you know, from 1963. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's not that much money. It's expensive. It's not that much money. And I bought it. And so, you know, one thing led to another. And, you know, I started, you know, accumulating more Beatles stuff than Hendrix and Morrison. And so, you know, uh, one thing led to another. I bought, I got um, a Paul McCartney bass I bought from a dealer and things started. Now they're, you know, so the, uh, you know, things started escalating. I mentioned when we first started, you know, the, the, what I, uh, what I purchased a few years ago was, you know, some rock and roll memorabilia, the Rolling Stones. So, you know, some of this just accumulated. I really didn't, I didn't start with the purpose of doing that, but it started to, uh, I see something, it looked like a really good piece. Some of the pieces, the rock and roll hall of fame would like to, you know, put in their, um, put in their displays that, um, you know, for particular rock stars, it might fit something that, uh, they had, they don't have like the, like the one I mentioned to you, the record mirror, the two page full out, you know, yeah. that's, uh, uh-huh. that's kind of a one of a kind right now. And so, um, you know, I may, I may donate that to them 
at oh, some point. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be very cool. So as we, we said, you you are a, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board member. How does one get to be on the board of uh, the most famous rock museum in the world? Um, I, I'm not sure. I didn't I didn't go out <laughs> looking for it. It had nothing to do. You still don't I, actually, know. <laughs> actually, no, I, I mean, actually, actually, it came as a result of uh, writing this book. Oh, okay. When I was when I mentioned to you that I did the research at the Rock Hall, uh, I was uh, on the board of a technology company, um, and um, the CEO of the company had asked me to help him review a potential acquisition because it was an area I knew something about. Uh-huh. And the bankers on the other side, um, I'd never been on LinkedIn before. And so I went on this a few years back. I went on LinkedIn and uh, one of the first people to connect with me was one of the bankers on the other side. That was part of the sale team on the other side. And, um, you know, I looked at his background and it said board of trustees. He was from Cleveland, uh, board of trustees, rock and roll hall of fame. And so um, he was a person I reached out to when I needed to go do one of the people when I wanted to try to get at some of the archives. And he introduced me some people and he was, you know, we struck up a friendship, you know, he followed up with me about six months later and he said, how did the research go? And I said, you know, everything's pretty good, but the technology there is virtually non-existent. I mean, how can you guys operate? And he goes, yeah, that's what I've been telling. We're trying to set up a technology committee of the board and we need to, most people are kind of museum or musician people. And so I told him, well, if you'd, if you'd like, I mean, I'm in the technology, maybe I can help you. I've got some ideas on this and, you know, you just let me, you know, come in and, you know, we can, I'll be on whatever calls you might want. You know, so we had a couple of these calls and, you know, he liked some of the thinking. Next thing you know, you know, he says, you know, Chris, you know, we, we need a guy like you on the board of trustees. And I said, no way. <laughs> and he goes, no, you know, no way. You know, so, you know, um, and so I began the vetting process. And that took a little bit of time. It's not a slam dunk because it's a very prestigious position. But he wanted to get another board member who was technically savvy and could help guide them um, and would uh, actually devote some time to their technology vision. And so, um, you know, I was asked to go on the board. I was vetted through, voted in. And now I'm co-chair of the technology committee of the board. And so we're helping guide them into through the 21st century. Well, we and hope so you're making a what, difference. Uh, uh, make this, uh, I, this material uh, available uh, to the, the public so people like ourselves can uh, delve into it and learn as much as we can about rock and roll. So it was the research that was the research on this book that actually prompted all the connections and, you know, was actually doing the research on these rock stars that actually um, got me an invitation to join the board of trustees. Wow. It had nothing to do with my job or anything. It had nothing to do with this. Um, So do you have any other rock and roll themed novels in mind? Uh, No, I, um, I do. I do. Um, you know, I have a couple other outlines of, you know, I mentioned to you the Revolutionary War. There are a couple others. Um, I did begin work on a sequel to Bright Midnight, but but I'll uh, hold off. It narrows it down. It takes it in a slightly different direction. Oh. It'll really be more about one another rock star. Because if you follow the myth of 27 yeah. and read Continue. the book and you'll, you'll you know, so is there... Is there? Um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away. No, don't give um, too much away. But uh, I won't give too much away here. But 
you know, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not too much of a stretch to think that there, there should be a follow-up to it. Right. Right. Well, we're getting, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here. I uh, uh, want to thank you, Chris, for that. But, uh, you know, yesterday, oh, you're the, uh, you. the, 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 the hall came out with its annual list. Uh, what do you think of the list? Uh, yeah, I got it a little bit earlier. You know, so I knew uh, who was going to be on there. And, and coincidentally, I just got from from the CEO of the Rock Hall, um, the uh, the voting site and, and our you know passwords to get in to um, to vote. We will vote for five of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For five of their 19 nominees. Uh, there was a larger list than that. It was winnowed down to 19, and then they'll um, you know, tabulate the most votes for five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you so, have any fa- – let me ask you a question. Do you have any favorites that are on the list? Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Uh, you know, I, I, I have multiple uh, favorites on here. I mean, um, probably the first band that I would ever say – I can call my own because I discovered them. I, um, uh, I wasn't introduced to them by a family member or something like that. Uh, and literally, uh, I was at a friend's house. I'm 13 years old. And this guy says, uh, I, I don't like this record. Do you want it? And uh, it was this awesome green looking spacey album. And I said, yeah. And I came home and put it on and my world changed. And that was yes is close to the edge. So personal wow. favorite uh, would, would be uh, – would be yes. I obviously feel that Pearl Jam, uh, you know, uh, as an influencer, you know, probably the last great moment in rock and roll, the grunge uh, period, uh, deserves mm-hmm. uh, to be in there. But I mean, you know, MC5, Kraftwerk, Steppenwolf, you know, uh, Tupac. Uh, how, how do you feel? Yeah, how do you feel about <laughs> jo- Joan Baez? Um, I was uh, shocked she opinion? is not in there uh, yeah. at this point. I mean, come on, um, you know, Bob Dylan. Uh, Joni Mitchell, Joan Baez. That's you know those are the 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 three pillars of the folk rock movement right there. So uh, I would bet that uh, that she's uh, probably going to get in there. So uh, we'll well you know again we'll we'll get to see. I'm sure you get to go to the dinner, the induction ceremony, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Got so every year, I've got to be a fun time. So. That's that that's got to be fun, and it's uh, you know it's unlike any organization in the world. It's um, I fashion it, and I I sort of characterize it as being the Library of Congress of Rock. And this is yeah. the this is the this is a repository and it's gone beyond rock and roll. Rock and roll has become sort of an umbrella of everything. You know, hip hop, EDM, oh, yeah. I mean, everything. You know, but um it is it's something to see how different multi multi generations react when they get exposed to it. And the, the rock hall is in the midst of a major capital campaign and upgrade and it's gonna be the goal our goal is to make it the major destination point in the world. And so when you go to the Rock Hall, it's like going to the best concert you've ever been to in your life. Uh, and so that is, we're going to change it into much, to much, much, much more of a visceral, much more of a visceral experience. But, um, you know, Christian, I'll leave, leave this with you. When I was doing my research there, and I'm in the, I'm in the archives in the place where people – you know, come in to do research or, you know, the public just, you know, you can get to it if you want, but they generally don't have anything. It's not even in the same building and uh, it's in their library building. 
and people would show up throughout the day and they'd hand over like some rock treasure that they had a poster they've kept for 30 years or 40 years, some picture and all And they'd hand it because it was almost like, it was almost the equivalent of like the Vietnam war memorials. You know, they were, they had something that they treasured and they wanted to give it. I couldn't think of any other place them. where it belonged then. This is, in this, this, is, shrine. this is where it, be- this yeah. is where it belonged in this shrine. Yeah. And it was really, and for many people, handing it over was kind of an emotional experience. And I'd never, you know, that someone come in with this old ratty old poster and you could hardly see, and it meant the world to them and they were handing it over, you know, and they wanted it to be in this place, even though, you know, the chances of it even getting on display would put with, you know, the volume of stuff that they have, you know, was low. They wanted, they wanted it in the hands of the, of people in the organization that would uh, protect it and treasure it forever. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's the Library of Congress of Rock. Well, I, I think you and I both agree that uh, this was an incredibly special moment in human history, and we're just now beginning yep. to understand what it was all about. Yep. Chris. And I it, think it's made, it's been far-reaching, yeah, yeah. in its impact. Chris, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you this morning. Uh, and for those of you uh, out there, please pick up Bright Midnight. You can find it at your uh, local bit bookstore, at uh, Amazon, or anywhere you find a good book. Amazon, yep. Yeah. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, please order it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, uh, again, thanks a lot. And, you know, uh, what we always say at the end is keep up the rocket. just hit shelves and online retailers on November 9th. We want to extend our sincere appreciation to Chris for taking the time to sit down with us. While we stress that this book is pure fiction, the 27 Club is unfortunately still growing. The most notable recent addition was Amy Whitehouse, who passed in 2011. The phenomenon is well known in the rock and roll community and the entertainment industry overall. Needless to say, whether it's a case of malicious conspiracy or simply sad coincidence, it's a trend we'd love to see bucked. Until next time, keep up the rockin', and we'll see you right here again for our next installment of Deeper Digs in Rock. There's danger on the edge of town Ride the king's highway Weird scenes inside the gold mine 
ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.